Hey everybody, glad to be with you again as we continue our study of the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. This series is called Inversion. It's the, the turning upside down of how we see power, uh, strength, what it means to live a, a purposeful life. Philippians is a letter emphasizing and calling us to emulate the same humility displayed by Jesus. And we, we walked through what's called the Christ hymn or the Christ poem last week. Philippians 2 verses 6 to 11 says, Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. The word in Greek is kenosis, kenotic giving of himself. Being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, the lowest form of death. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and he gave him a name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge, it's just a way of saying eh, all of creation, will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, last week, I challenged you with some spiritual slash social homework. Um, and may, I don't know whether you can remember what that was. I suggested three ways to practice humility. And they're not the only ways, but they are practical ways. I said, I said let go, stop impressing, and make it about other people. I said, let, let it go. When you, are, when you are right and someone else is wrong, let it go without winning the argument. When injustice has been, been done to you, practice letting it go. The second, I said, stop impressing. Take a, take a break uh, from that story that always gets a good laugh, uh, that always makes you look good, makes everyone, let that go. And thirdly, and connected to that, is make it about other people. Replace stories about yourself with stories that make other people look great. Try to make, make moments about other people. So how did you do? If you remember to, well, I'll tell you, it wasn't easy in my life, but I'm working on it. But the point I wanted to make was that the, the explanation of Jesus' humility in Philippians 2, 5 to 11 is not just to, to give the warm fuzzies. It's also meant to draw us into and stir a desire to live out the life that Christ did. It's, it's the path we are called to as his followers. Why should we be different than our Savior, right? He suffered, we will suffer. But remember, the path of Christ ends in glory, and that will be ours as well. Verse 9 of Philippians 2 says, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That is the shape of the, of the pathway that Jesus has created for us to salvation. He's made the path the glory that we must follow through. And the invitation of the gospel is to follow his path. Or as the author of the, the book of Hebrews writes it in chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we get this image of kind of running a race with a crowd around us. So another image I like is that you kind of like, Jesus has created this path for us to follow and it, it's difficult as it was difficult for him. It, it included difficulty, times of shame, a call to endurance, but it ends in glory. It's like, like a jungle growing in on us, entangling, entangling us. Sin has moved in, overgrown, suffocating, but Jesus in his life shows us a path for living. Cuts through the, the overgrowth of sin and in his death on a cross, he punctures through the final barrier that sin holds on all of us. And in his resurrection, he shows that there, there is life on the other side for all who follow his path. 
His death brings us life. That's why Christians sounded so crazy when they would talk about a savior on a cross, the most shameful symbol of the day. But that's what the self-emptying life, the canonic life and death of Jesus does. As New Testament scholar George Hunsinger writes, he says, the most potent symbol of shame has been transposed into an emblem of glory. And that's what the gospel does. It takes our shame and our struggle and it, it makes them beautiful when they're connected to Jesus. It has always been a sign to the world, like, like light shining in the darkness, Paul writes in Philippians 2, 15 and 16. When Christians imitate Jesus, even in their suffering, you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life, he says. That is why Paul is happy, even when suffering. He doesn't see it as Jesus being far off from him. He sees it as a privilege to suffer for Jesus because all of it is worth it. All of it is not outside the path that Christ calls us to. Suffering and trial is not out of the blue for a Christian. It is part and parcel of what it means to associate with Jesus. To, to quote the theologian Chandler Bing, this is not out of the blue. It is smack dab in the middle of the blue. Now I tell you all that to lead you into today's text. Paul seems to, to change the topic in his letter uh, a little bit. In, in chapter 2, verses 19 to 30, he says, I, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with you. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Verse 25, he says, but I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. And indeed he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety." So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Now, at first glance, it's, it's as if Paul changes his subject here. We've been talking about death and martyrdom, a Jesus' death, Paul's own possible death, the possible persecution of the church in Philippi. And it's almost like he's saying, let's lighten the subject a little bit from martyrdom and, and just talk some church business. Let me fill you in on my itinerary, the itinerary of my friends. But Paul's doing more than that. He's, he offers up two individuals, not simply to pass information, but to offer examples of kenosis, of, of giving up of the self for the other, as those who represent Jesus well. And, and as a contrast to what Paul warns against, if you remember back in, verses, in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where he's talking to the church, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the, of the others. And, and Paul is offering these two role models. He wants to publicly honor them. He also wants to lift them up as examples of those who understand this canonic giving up of the self. So he gives an example of honorable lives. First, he mentions Timothy in verses 19 to 24. He says, I'm going to send you Timothy. 
Timothy was one of Paul's closest friends. Timothy was Paul's ministry partner. Paul, in several areas, but in this, in this text as well, he says he's like a son to me. Timothy was from a city called Lystra in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. He was the son of a Jewish mother and a Greek father. Uh, we first meet him in Acts 16, verse 1. In, in, in Acts 16, verse 1, it says, Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. So Paul met Timothy, actually, if you read uh, Acts 16, just before he traveled to Philippi and started the church there. So Timothy is more than just a messenger that Paul wants to send. He's part of the history of the church. He had ministered with and, and at Paul's side for years and traveled with him, faced death with him, prayed with him, bled with him, wept with him, sang hymns probably in prison with him. He is like a son to me, Paul says. He lives out the, the kenosis, the self-giving that Christ does. He's, he's willing to give up his desires for you, for me, for the gospel. He's given up his rights for the sake of the gospel. Paul says it, it hurts to send him because he's my closest friend. He's, he's my greatest help, but I will send him until I can come. Kind of like a proxy. Timothy's unlike those who ignore the model of Christ. In verse 21 of chapter 2, he says, For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but not Timothy. That's what he's implying in verse 22. He says, but you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel, trying to please Paul, trying to please Christ. So if I cannot come to you, Paul is saying, he's the next best thing. In fact, it's like a father sending his son in his place. But, Paul says, I'll also send you Epaphroditus. The friend and messenger that you sent me, I'll send him back. He's been such an encouragement to me. Now, Paul mentions a gift that he, he brought, and it's most likely a financial gift, but also encouragement, messages from the church in Philippi. Uh, I know you love him, so I will send him back. Now, it appears that something has happened to Epaphroditus, either on his way to Paul, on the journey, which could be treacherous, or maybe while he was with Paul in the, in the prison, spending time with him, says he was close to death. He was sick. Verse 27 says, indeed, he was ill. He was near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So church, I will, I'll send him back to you so you can be at peace. You can embrace him and tell him you love him and that, that you're glad he's okay. And then verse 29 says, So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy. Honor people like him, like Epaphroditus, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Now that last little bit there, it, it kind of sounds negative at first, like they did something wrong. He, he gave me what you could not give me. He, 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 didn't, he didn't give me what, he, he gave me what you should have given me. Well, that's, not what, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul says something similar to this while writing to another church when he, when he writes his first letter to the church in Corinth. Again, he's, he's thanking them for a gift, but then he says in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 17, I was glad when Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. Well, what does Paul mean when he says that? It does sound kind of negative at first, but what he's saying is that even though you couldn't come, even though you're the, the ecclesia, the church, the whole church couldn't come because I know you wanted to, and, and I couldn't come to you, these people that you sent uh, representing you, they've, they've filled me up, so don't worry about it. They, they've taken care of all the things you wanted to deliver, they've delivered it. 
Epaphroditus is my brother. He's my worker. He's my fellow soldier, Paul says in verse 25. I actually think we should read over those too fast. I think these are helpful descriptions for the church. The church serves no purpose if we are not a ministering church. And these are helpful characteristics of what it means to minister together in community. He calls Epaphroditus his brother. He brought comfort and joy and encouragement to Paul and Timothy and the rest who were, who were with him. He's, he's like family. He's not going anywhere. He's in for the long haul. Is that how you, how you and I think of the church and what it means to do ministry together? He also calls him a co-worker. He's not just a bystander. He, he made the trip to bring a gift and deliver a message and offer encouragement to Paul. And he's a hands-on worker for the gospel. And then Paul calls him a fellow soldier. This image of battling side by side with Paul, facing death and sorrow and pain, the darkness of a prison cell, that was a choice for Epaphroditus. To associate with a prisoner of Caesar could actually mean trouble for him. So between Timothy and Epaphroditus, I think we are given a great example of the kinds of people that we as a church, as Christians, ought to honor. What kind of lives ought we to honor? Well, first, lives that show genuine concern for others. Lives that go out of their way to care for and serve those in need. Also, lives that look to the interests of others above their own. Again, Philippians 2, 3 to 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Do we honor those people who give themselves so fully like that? And then next, we need to honor those who have proven themselves. Not someone who talks big, even who is eloquent or charismatic, but someone who has the fruits of the Spirit, who's, who loves, is humble, who do not merely listen to the Word of God, but do what it says. As James writes in his letter, James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, lives in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. This is what the church, this is why the church can never be just YouTube content or Zoom calls. You cannot live out scripture on a screen. The fruits of the Spirit grow in community. Galatians 5, and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. When these characteristics are growing in people's lives, they ought to be honored. It ought to be pointed out. It ought to be encouraged. Paul thought that it ought to be honored in public. Now, all the extroverts who are, who are watching are just like, I'm not that concerned about the fruits of the Spirit. <laughs> Don't honor me in front of anybody. But there's a danger in gifted people, talented, charismatic people, that they are honored without proven character. We see this in, in media, in the realm of celebrity, and sadly, we've seen it in the church too. We honor athletes and celebrities, not because they've proven themselves, but because they are talented. We, we trust them for advice, relationship advice, political advice, what car to buy, because they are famous, not because they have character. In the Hebrew Scriptures, in the book of 1 Samuel, the story is told of the first king of Israel. Now, the whole reason that Israel wanted a king was not because, um, not because God had suggested it, but because they wanted to be like other nations. They wanted to look like the world around them. They deserved it, and they wanted to honor themselves, really, with a king. 
God warned them, saying that a king would bring trouble, but they decided they knew better. So God allowed them to have a king. And the first king, as many of you will know, his name was Saul. And Saul was the son of a man named Kish. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, it says, Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. And Israel loved this. In fact, they had little concern about what kind of leader he would be. They saw that he was tall, dark, and handsome, and that was enough. He would make them like other kingdoms that surrounded them. Reluctantly, God asks the prophet Samuel to introduce Saul to the nation, this kind of inauguration. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 17 to 19, it says, Samuel, the prophet, summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God who, saved you, who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, no, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. And as Samuel tries to introduce Saul, they actually find this future leader hiding out in the storage, afraid to be dragged up front. In verses 23 to 24 of 1 Samuel 10, it says, And they ran and they brought him out. <laughs> like, see, like see the heel marks in the sand. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among the people. And then the people shouted, Long live the king. And if you know the story, Saul was a horrible king. He was full of rage. He was full of jealousy, mistrust, mismanagement of the kingdom. He was abusive, and he, he, but he had the look. He, he looked like what the world glorified and honored. He had what the world honors. Paul would have had no use for a Saul. Paul would say, give me a person with a gentle concern for others over the tall, dark, and handsome poster child of the gospel. Give me someone who has a, a theology of the road where what they read, what they hear on Sunday, what they sing in worship, what they mull over in prayer makes it to the everyday self-sacrificial kenosis of following Jesus into prisons and brokenness and suffering. What kind of people do we tend to honor in our world, in our churches? Effective people? Charismatic people? The truth is often the list of what makes someone a famous pastor can often be accomplished without Jesus in the mix. <laughs> Timothy and Epaphroditus, letter carriers, travelers on long journeys to deliver letters to a, a prisoner of Rome would probably not make the list that many of us would write down. So what do we gain from this, this simple little section of Paul's letter to the Philippians, I think, I think we need to ask ourselves uh, two questions. One is, how do we measure good theology? This is what I mean. Timothy and Epaphroditus, they probably did not stand out in the crowd. They were everyday people doing the everyday, some would say mundane work of God, but they had a theology of the everyday life, a theology of the road where what they say they believed hit the pavement of the everyday. Theology has little value unless it connects with day-to-day -day living and shapes our ordinary practices and relationships. Theologically, we would say orthodoxy, right belief, must be coupled with orthopraxy, right living. 
A theology that is disconnected to the everyday is not helpful theology. I don't care if you're a Calvinist, an Arminian, you love the writings of N.T. Wright or John Piper, the Church Fathers or Francis Chan, Joyce Myers or Beth Moore. If it does not become a theology of the road, it means nothing. The reason Timothy and Epaphroditus are so honored by Paul is that they worked out their salvation with fear and trembling. They had an, an animated reverence that connected to their everyday living and serving. I think the second question we need to ask is, how do we measure significance and, and what we honor? I wonder how confused Paul would be if he were to scan social media today, websites, and, and wonder about how churches were run and how they're represented and who we've decided as the church to honor. I wonder if many of the pastors who have become famous for growing megachurches, who have a massive online presence, hundreds of thousands of followers, might look more like a Caesar to Paul than a canonic reflection of Jesus. The default na nature of the internet is self-promotion. The default nature of the West is self-promotion. I wonder if a theology of the road would do more for the kingdom. A cruciform life of everyday people overcome with Christ's promotion would do more than any website or online presence of a church ever could. The community of Christ, his church, has done its best work, kingdom work, gospel work, not in moments of power and self-promotion, but in moments of humility and sacrifice. George Mueller was a, was a minister in Bristol, England in the first half of the 19th century, and he had a, a heart for abandoned children and a desire to give them uh, comfort and to serve them and feed them and educate them. It's reported that in his lifetime he cared for over 10,000, well they have a specific number, 10,024 orphans during his lifetime, and he provided education for the orphans, so much to the point that he was accused of raising the poor above their natural station in British life because he educated them above others. During his humble ministry, he established 117 schools which offered education to over 120,000 children. By all accounts, he sacrificed his comfort to educate the poor and instill in them the love of Jesus. In his early years, he actually housed 30 children in his own rented home. He was a man of deep faith with a theology that hit the pavement. He had hard times trying to make ends meet, but he found that God provided through anonymous donors and on some occasions, divine intervention. On one occasion, he was giving thanks for a meal that actually was not in front of the children yet as he was praying. They were sitting at the table while he was thanking God for a meal. And as they finished praying, a baker knocked on the door with enough fresh bread to feed all of the children. At the same time, a milkman whose cart broke down right outside the orphanage gave them all his milk because he would have been unable to make all his deliveries. George Mueller was once asked how he was so effective. He said, there was a day when I died, utterly died. I died to George Mueller, his opinions, his preferences, his tastes and will. I died to the world, its approval or its censure. I died to the approval or blame even of my brethren and friends. And since then I have studied to show myself approved only to God. Paul said something similar in Galatians 2.20. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the proclamation of Paul. The proclamation that he makes with the lives of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And it's the lived out theology of the road that brings the upside down humility, the strange inversion that brings life and freedom and honor to the church and to Christ. And this is the life worth living 
and the life worth honoring. Church, I love you. Hope to see you soon. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and may he give you his peace.